This is the Daily Theology Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Oakey. Today on the podcast, we have my conversation with Professor Philip Cunningham of St. Joseph's University. Dr. Cunningham was recently at St. Leo, where he was giving a presentation on challenges and prospects in Catholic-Jewish relations. He was also here to receive the Eternal Light Award given by St. Leo's Center for Catholic-Jewish Studies to people who have made significant contributions to Catholic-Jewish relations. So my thanks to Professor Matt Tapey, director of the CCJS, whom you will hear chime in on this conversation. Among other things, we talk about Professor Cunningham's early research into how Christian religious education material represented and misrepresented Judaism, what it would mean to rethink the Good Friday liturgy in light of anti-Semitism, and how Jewish-Christian dialogue might enable one to think more deeply about Christology. In light of our discussion of anti-Semitism, I'd like to note that we recorded this conversation on October 25th, two days before the mass shooting at the Tree of Life Synagogue. I pray for all those affected by anti-Semitism and violence, and I hope that the work of people like Dr. Cunningham might help us to find ways forward. As the year wraps up, I'd like to take a moment and thank those folks who have headed over to patreon.com slash dtpodcast in order to support the show. They continue to receive the finest benefits, including, but not limited to, swag, automatic entry in any of our giveaways, and aid in acquiring the virtue of generosity. Please also leave comments on the blog post that accompanies this episode, or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Another way you can help is recommend the show to your friends who are searching for podcasts to listen to while driving or doing yard work. As always, thanks for listening. Welcome to the Daily Theology Podcast. I'm here today with Professor Philip Cunningham of St. Joseph's University. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. Thank you. I always like to open with the question of how did you come to study theology? So my undergraduate major was American history. Hmm. And on the basis of that, I began teaching Catholic junior high school And the way that the uh, curriculum was devised was I also ended up teaching religion, as it was called, to the 7th and 8th grade, Mm -hmm. some of the 7th and 8th grade sections. And it was in teaching religion that my sort of educational juices got engaged in terms of (laughs) how do I I teach the Catholic faith to, to that age group? This is in the 1970s. And uh, and one thing led to another. So it was it was primarily I was approaching the study. I, I decided to go for a, um, a master's in secondary education curriculum development at the time that I was teaching then. But then I immediately went for a master's degree in theology okay. because I wanted to enhance that part of of my um, my teaching. What was it that, that did you always know that you wanted to be a teacher, or was that itself something that you discovered? I don't know the full answer to that. I, I've, I think teaching had always been a possibility in my mind. Okay. Uh, I can't remember a time when it wasn't. And it, it happens that, and I think I discovered this later, it happens that my, my uncle and my grandfather and my great-grandfather were all town schoolmasters in Donegal in <laughs> Ireland, where my father came from uh, in 1929. So it's in the blood, but I didn't know it at the time. And so you went to Fordham, and what was it that drew you to Fordham? Well, what drew me to Fordham was when I was in the seventh grade, 
Fordham Prep and Fordham College announced that they were going to do a special experimental educational program called the 3-3 program in which, (laughs) you didn't know this, in which uh, seventh graders would go directly into Fordham Prep and do high school in three years and college in three years. Holy cow. And that's that's what attracted me to Fordham. I applied and was a, well, it seemed rather appealing in many ways. I mean, it has its pros and cons in retrospect, but but that's what brought me to Fordham. So okay. I graduated after six years in 1972 uh, from Fordham College. And so you went on later, eventually to Boston minute, College. That's not right. Yes, it is right. 72. Sorry. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> you went on, it's so long ago. Yeah. You, you went on to fellow Jesuit institution, Boston College, later on after mm-hmm. your master's degrees. Mm-hmm. Is, is there something about the Jesuits that keeps pulling you? or? I think that the Jesuit... I did not choose those institutions because they were Jesuit, but I th- they were there was more geographic factors and, mm-hmm. and program availabilities that interested me. But certainly the the commitment of the Society of Jesus to to serious academic study and serious commitment to education in whatever discipline of academic study we're talking about, certainly I felt very comfortable with and, and embraced myself. Mm-hmm. And in your studies and in your trajectory, what was it that drew you to the question of Christian-Jewish relations as a, as a focal point? Yeah, so that, that's a question I am asked more often. Um, <laughs> Um, I knew I'd get there. Eventually. Yeah, <laughs> good. So um, it, when I when I went into theological studies in a serious way, I was particularly drawn to biblical studies, and in fact, I concentrated on that rather quickly, both in my master's degree and then later in my doctoral studies. In the context of biblical studies, I came to perceive that the the way that Christians read the Bible has a tremendous impact on their attitudes toward Jews and Judaism and indeed to other religions in general. And so that was the path. My, mm-hmm. my entry into Christian or Catholic-Jewish relations is primarily through biblical studies, and the field of, of Christian-Jewish relations is one that admits to various angles of entry. One mm-hmm. can enter it through Holocaust studies or through systematic theological studies or through cultural research. But for me, it was biblical studies. Okay. And how for you, so as I was you know, doing my research on you, one of the things I saw that I found very interesting was your dissertation topic, mm. where it looked at the way that Judaism was being presented in, was it like middle school and high school text, mm-hmm. Christian, te- religious textbooks, right? Yeah, Catholic religion textbooks. And yeah. I was very fascinated because one, I, I mean, it wasn't the thing that I particularly thought about, but in this question about education and also this question about Christian-Jewish relations, this is, I mean, one, is a very obvious synergy between the two, but I'm wondering also how, well, I mean, one, what did you find in that study? But two, how did that shape your subsequent work? The study itself was appealing both for the topic, but also because uh, it was contained and limited. Uh, it had a focus. And there had been a similar study done roughly 20 years earlier, uh, 15 to 20 years earlier, by Dr. Eugene Fisher, who is involved with the center here at, at St. Leo's, the Center for Catholic Jewish Studies. And before him, roughly the same amount of time, 15 or so years before his study in the 70s, there was a study by Sister Rose Thering, 
that ex- was a, a little bit of a different design. But anyway, the point of all of this is they all, th- both of these two previous studied, uh, examined Catholic religion textbooks, how Jews and Judaism were presented in the lessons within those textbooks. And so I had a basis of comparison mm. from before the Nostra Aetate and the Second Vatican Council to, to Eugene Fisher's study a decade or so after the Second Vatican Council, and then my own study another 15 years after that. So what the, the general results of the study were that some of the really gross anti-Jewish material that were in the textbooks in the 1950s had totally vanished mm. by the 1970s and and. I don't know how you could say it even more vanished, but anyway, it was it was even <laughs> further absent in in the 1980s, late 80s. What I discerned, however, was that there were still particular topics that the textbooks had problems with in terms of their accuracy, mm. and these would have been th- topics such as how is the relationship between the Old and the New Testament understood or presented? Is the Old Testament pr- presented as something? Uh, whose sole purpose was to foretell Christ in the church? Is it implied that it's obsolete? There's a sort of indirect gauge of that attitude as well. If sudden, if, if you have in religion textbooks Israel or Israelites or Hebrews or Jews being a major topic, and then suddenly after Christ they vanish, mm-hmm. that says something. The way the Pharisees are discussed, the way that Jesus' interactions with Jewish contemporaries was presented— these were all areas that, that I identified as problematic. And the the basis for making that determination were Catholic documents, Vatican and Episcopal conference documents that had been issued after Nostra Aetate in 65, up to the time I did my study, that were it, it, they, these documents would say things like, Jesus was probably closest to the Pharisees of any other Jewish group at the time, and so if you have a textbook such as one had, which has an exercise, a list of perhaps 50 gospel quotations that hmm. were all Pharisees critiquing Jesus for some reason, and the exercise instructs the students to look up these passages and tell us what that says about the Pharisees, you know, that's, that's in direct contradiction to what these Vatican documents were saying. So that was the basis for identifying mm-hmm. problem areas that still lingered, but stuff like the Jews crucified Jesus, or that they're under a divine curse, the the sort of foundation of the Christian anti-Jewish tradition, that was totally gone. Mm. Do you have a sense, and I, I wonder this in part because in my own teaching with undergrads, a lot of the unreflective, uncritical views of Jews within Christianity are, are consistent with what you're describing. And you know, one kind of persistent struggle is I present them, among other types of interpretation, I present historical critical reading mm-hmm. uh, as part of it. And and for some students, this works really well, very insightful, and is helpful, and it gives them some kind of context. And so things like, you know, there's a there's a diversity of, you know, Jewish sects at the time, mm-hmm. you know, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Sure. But in in your research in terms of working, looking at, and, and the books you've written in terms of, you know, middle school and high school education, does that approach work well in those contexts? Are there other things that you find effective? So I haven't taught middle or high school for a while now. I'm teaching okay. undergraduate college age students. What I most lament in their preparation before coming to college is more or less a total lack of a critical awareness of the Bible. Mm. 
whether they have gone through Catholic schools or parish education programs, it would be the rare student who even thinks about the question, for instance, might the gospel writers writing decades after the life of Jesus possibly be influenced by the circumstances of their own time, which is sort of a basic fundamental Mm -hmm. principle of modern Catholic biblical interpretation. Mm -hmm. So, So your question... Is, is actually touching at, in some ways, a deeper issue than attitudes toward Jews. Mm-hmm. It's actually attitudes toward the Bible at, as a whole. And again, I lament this, and it just seems to me, for example, that if homilies at Sunday liturgies, which is where most Catholics encounter the Bible— were to make simple observations, for example, if a particular gospel on a Sunday was from the Gospel of Luke, if the homilist, instead of saying something like, today we see Jesus teaching the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector and and, and elucidating on what Jesus' parable was all about, if if just the, the homilist would say, in today's gospel, Luke presents us with a parable that Jesus told, and Luke's understanding of that parable reflects Luke's wider <laughs> perspective on this topic. In other words, in other words, what I think happens almost constantly in my experience is that the gospel is presented as if it were an eyewitness transcript of of the actions and words of Jesus. Yeah. And that is not Catholic teaching, right? We understand that these are written by the evangelists Mm -hmm. and they have their own inspired, but nonetheless personal portrait of Jesus that Mm -hmm. they, that they present to their readers. And the the homilist, I feel for what my opinion is worth on this, I think the homilist ought to be introducing us to the evangelists, Mm. which never happens in my experience. So that that's, I'm, I'm, (laughs) <laughs> you, you touched one of my button issues so oh ha- happy happy to do so <laughs> yeah. i i mean it, it it strikes me in two ways what you're saying one is one of the struggles that i have with my own undergraduates is even at the level of basic knowledge of what's in scripture let alone any kind of critical reading that's often absent. that's true and uh, that's uh, quite true in and, my experience as well and you know some of uh some of the courses that i taught you know the way they've been taught in the past they, they're built on this presumption that you have at least a basic familiarity. So an idea like the covenant is something that they would know, mm-hmm. and, and, and it's not. That's right. In, in my experience. So uh, in, a, in my work at St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia, where I, where I co-direct an institute quite similar to St. Leo's Center for uh, Catholic Jewish Studies, I, I'm blessed to have the opportunity to team teach every semester with a Jewish colleague mm. and the Jewish co-director of our institute. And the course we're, we're in the midst of is, is one we've totally revamped for this semester called Jewish and Christian Interpretations of the Bible. And the way that we reconstructed that course ties in with what you just said, Steve, which is that we did not presume much foreknowledge of the scriptural texts themselves and spent the first five weeks or so of the course in a cl- we focused on the book of Genesis, a sort mm-hmm. of a test case, rather than our earlier approach, which was some Genesis, some Isaiah, some Jeremiah, some of this. We, yeah. we focused on it and just read through the text word by word, line by line for five weeks, 
and try to understand it on its own terms. And now we're at the point in the course where we're seeing how later Jewish and Christian readers, starting in the late Second Temple period onward, drew upon particularly Genesis 1 to 3, the creation mm -hmm. and the Garden of Eden narratives. And the students have told us in their mid, we, we give out a midterm evaluation and see, ask the students to tell us how they're doing, you know, how, how they're feeling about the course. And a couple of them had indicated, you know, I never realized that the, some of the stuff was in the Bible. <laughs> I mean, they've all heard of Adam and Eve, but but some of the other interesting parts of Genesis. Yeah. So, uh, so anyway, I, I agree totally with your um, observations. The other thing that struck me what you said in terms of the homily, and this is on my mind because I was at a, I was giving workshops at a conference for the Archdiocese of Houston this past weekend. Mm. And during one of my workshops, we were talking about, you know, the problem of distraction. Cause I, I do stuff with technology and we were talking about technology and ritual and uh -huh. you know, we were talking about, so we talked a lot about the mass as sort of a way of thinking about ritual in terms of, you know, entrance, activity, closing, things like that. And one of the things I asked them was, you know, when in the mass are you, you know, most distracted or least attentive or most zoned out and to a person, they all said the homily. <laughs> and, I, and, and so there, there's, the, there's this part of me that shares that same struggle with them, because if I'm being honest, mea culpa, this is where I often uh -huh. you know, struggle too. And I do wonder, not that it's not the right place. I think you're right. It's the right place to do that sort of work. But I also wonder, like, how can we do that in a way that is you know, effective and attentive drawing and and that too. So, uh, and as someone who doesn't have to preach, it's not exactly my problem. But, okay, yeah. and it's certainly not mine directly. But let me let me say this: the the homily is not the place to give an academic lecture on biblical exactly. exegesis, and that's why in my when I earlier said, if the homilist just simply said, the writer of this text is telling us this, mm -hmm. that's not requiring an advanced college degree to understand, but it frames the whole presentation mm -hmm. differently. And that combined with uh, the question that I think the homilist must always ask him or herself, which is, so what? Mm -hmm. What difference does this text, which is what the homily is supposed to address, what difference does that make in people's lives today? If that's forefronted, I think that is more likely to engage the, the congregation. Yeah. I mean, that, that sounds very patent, very simple answer, and I appreciate the difficulty <laughs> in doing this, but, but I think those, that's the general parameters, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and part of it, too, is just the challenge of, I mean, it is a subtle distinction, and it's the kind of thing that, if done consistently, can have that kind of power. Yeah, yeah. But well, our lectionary, the, the Catholic lectionary and, and the common lectionary as well, are currently orchestrated in such a way as to really enable that because you have... All of Matthew one year, with some exceptions, as you know, mm -hmm. and then you've Luke one year, you have Mark kind of mismatched with John another year. But the, the potential of building a very clear and detailed understanding of this writer's perspective doesn't have to happen in one Sunday's homily. It can happen mm -hmm. for several, 40 weeks or whatever. Yeah. So, uh, and again, it's ha it can be very subtle. It doesn't have to be this sort of, let's roll out the PowerPoint, you know, and, <laughs> and show the, the relevance of the Q source on Matthew or Luca. You know, uh, You're certainly more likely to lose them that way. <laughs> I, I would say, well, unless you're really good. But anyway, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Very good. 
you know, one of the things, Phil, that I was thinking about as you were talking about homilies is this this constant kind of challenge of, you know, preparing for the Easter liturgy. Mm-hmm. And could you comment on this? I mean, this is a topic, you know, each, each year, uh, this is a time when Catholics reflect, you know, with profound interest, uh, of course, in, in uh, Christ's sacrifice uh, in the Passion. How can Catholics think about those scriptures in the liturgy in a way that would perhaps be in the spirit of Nostra So uh, I'm going to focus specifically on the Good Friday liturgy because although the Easter Vigil has has some, to my mind, problematic aspects in terms of the quote-unquote Old Testament being entirely seen as more or less predictive, that that is a it, it seems to be a less entrenched problem in some ways. Good Friday, to me, the, the, the greatest difficulty in terms of Catholic or Christian-Jewish relations is the, the uh, tradition of reading the entirety of the Johannine Passion narrative on Good Friday. The Gospel of John has its own particular features that over history have been deleterious and in some cases lethally so for Jews with the constant recurrence of hoyu dioi, the Jews, as it's usually rendered into English, including in the Passion narratives, being very uh, prominent. Now, in, in line with the, what we were just speaking about, I don't believe it's the homilist's role to every Good Friday explain why the Gospel of John presents the Jews in the hostile way that it does. It, it requires a history lesson. It requires exegesis of the Johannine text. And that's not, the, that's not what a homily should do. But on the other hand, it seems to me there's also an obligation not to simply repeat constantly without any guidance the, the kind of annual booster shot of anti-Judaism that the Jews, the Jews, the Jews, the Jews, you get. Missalette manufacturers or publishers decades ago made an attempt, which I think was well-motivated and and in the right direction, to assist the congregation in understanding the church's teaching that it is our sins, that the congregation's sins, that that are involved in in the death of Jesus, by having the lectionary reading of the Johannine Passion narrative broken up into dramatic parts, and the crowd, the, i.e. the congregation, yells out, crucify him, crucify him, or we have no king but Caesar, whatever. But I, 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 it would be an interesting study to know if that, if that really has the pastoral effect that that strategy intends. In other words, do most people think they're simply play-acting the Jews, or do they really take it to heart as something implicating them? Uh, and so that's a real problem. My, my th- recommendation for one way of addressing this is to question the practice of reading the Johannine Passion narrative in its entirety. This is one of the few gospel texts, it's certainly one of the few biblical lections that we feel compelled to read in its entirety, word for word. And almost every other liturgy of the church's uh, liturgical year, the readings are 
are spliced up, you know, and particularly the Old Testament reading in order to match it to the gospel reading without much question. But, you know, you'll have whatever the gospel, the, 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 the biblical book is, chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, 5a, 13 to 15, and so forth. Now, I don't think we need that radical a surgery in terms of the Joannine Passion narrative, but there are things that could be skipped. And, and um, I'm, for some reason, I'm also thinking of the Matthean Passion narrative, which happens once every three years on Passion or Palm Sunday, Really, do we have to yell out Matthew twenty-seven twenty-five? His blood be on us and on our children. Why there is there is no. It doesn't seem to me that the liturgical context provides a venue for any constructive spiritual consequence of mm. proclaiming that verse. It, whereas, if you do proclaim that verse, I think there's a kind of moral obligation to explain what Matthew was up to there, which is not a timeless indictment of Jews for all time, which is how Christian history has has utilized that text. So since the homily can't deal with it, it ought not to be presented to the congregation. And and in a way, this reminds me of sort of a, a, a proverb almost that um, one of my scholarly heroes, Raymond Brown, one of the foremost Catholic biblical scholars of the late 20th century, he said at a workshop I was happy to be at once, you may not leave your students with a problem that you have not given them the equipment to resolve. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is what happens on Good Friday with the Joannine Passion Narrative and to uh, a different degree with the other Passion Narratives on Passion Sunday. If we're going to give them a problem that historically has been lethal to Jews we have a responsibility to equip them with the ability to resolve that problem. And since that's impossible in the context of a homily, when you're, when, which ought to be focusing on the death of Jesus and its, its theological meaning, then I think it ought to be removed. Well, and, and there's certainly precedent for that sort of thing. Absolutely. In, in terms yeah. of, it's I not a, a novel. Yeah, well, and I, I have a graduate student who was just talking to me the other day about the uh, assignment he was given gratefully but unexpectedly for one of his research papers was to look at anti-Semitism in pre-Vatican II liturgy. And, and he's a, he's a Benedictine and he's a sacristan or he's worked as a sacristan. And so he's very invested in the liturgy. Sure, sure. And it was, he described it as this very sort of profound and insightful moment for him. And it's had an impact on him going forward in terms of thinking about what's been sort of the resurgence of, you know, the Tridentine liturgy in the last 10 years and, and uh-huh. some of his concern about that, some of the anti-Semitic, you know, dimensions that can be a, a part of that. I mean, if I may comment Please. on that, I think my, the, the, the professor under whom I did my doctoral dissertation, uh, Dr. Mary Boyce, who uh, teaches now at Union Theological in New York, but at that time was at Boston College, related that experience that she had had that I have also had subsequently many times myself, and that is you develop an acute sensitivity to these kinds of issues, such as your, your student was, uh, was expressing, if you're attending these liturgies with a Jewish friend, mm-hmm. and you automatically are wondering, how are they hearing what's happening, what's being said, what's being prayed? And, and it, it's not always the most egregious topic like the death of Jesus and the deicide charge, you know, and all that, it can be much more subtle. So for example, 
at St. Joseph's University, as many other universities do, we open the, the academic year with a Mass of the Holy Spirit. One of the gospel selections for the Mass of the Holy Spirit is a post-resurrectional appearance narrative from the Gospel of John, and it begins with the words, and the, the doors were locked for fear of the Jews. Mm. And then it goes on to have a resurrection appearance of Jesus, and, uh, and he breathes on them, receive the Holy Spirit, which is, of course, why that lection is included in the Mass of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> but when you have faculty members in your university that are Jews, and you are sitting next to them, and they are close friends of yours, and the gospel's about to begin with the disciples were in hiding for fear of the Jews— You've killed that moment for them, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's it's, uh, and it has nothing to do with the Holy Spirit, which is what the the focus of that liturgy is about. So it's uh, my my point is simply to say that that experiencing our worship as Christians in the presence of the other is a very quick, effective sensitization process. And when I when I talk to students about in a sort of a, you know, the, the context of an intro course, uh, an intro to Christianity course, when we talk about interreligious dialogue, you know, one of the things that they tend to assume it is, is, you know, just, just people talking, you know, especially about texts like Nostra Aetate, which is valuable and good. Of and course. Like, yeah, like yeah. We're gonna, that's what we're probably going to do in class. Mm -hmm. But also things like praying with others, going to other services, you know, that, that sort of mm -hmm. mode of interreligious encounter is, can be instructive in its own way. So. Absolutely. And, and there's something you said there that let me use the springboard to something else. And that is Catholics and Jews have been able to converse with one another for 50 some odd years since Nostra Aetate, mm -hmm. Vatican II. And we've learned some lessons, both, both Jews and, and Catholics. We've learned some things that are mistakes that, that doesn't help promote understanding. But I think that now, 50 plus years into this new relationship, particularly here in the United States, that in a way we've cleared the table of a lot of the, the, the stuff from the past that has made it impossible for us to speak, mm. that has alienated us from each other. Uh, we've now, for example, we meaning Catholics, have, have realized that if we're engaged in interreligious dialogue, that that is not a venue for hoping for conversions of Jews. It, it just invalidates the whole encounter to even have that as, a, as, a, as an ulterior motive, if I mm -hmm. put it that way. So now that we've cleared the table and we are able literally for the first time in history to face one another as equal partners in covenant with God, we can now learn from one another's experiences of God. And what could be more important for a religious person than to learn more about God mm -hmm. and to do it from to learn more about God in a way that is impossible without going outside your own tradition and without hearing from another ancient tradition that has been in relationship with God for a long, long time and has learned from that relationship. That's where I think we are today. Mm -hmm. I think we're at the threshold of at least some Jews and some Catholics and other Christians and, and so on, of, of being able to deepen our awareness of the Holy One by experiencing holiness in each other. Mm -hmm. and, and that's, I think, a really exciting time to be living in. Yeah. My, my own theological research has been on David Tracy. Uh -huh. and, and one of the things that I find fascinating in this 
this comment about, you know, seeking conversion, proselytizing, things like that, is when he talks about conversation and what the ideal of conversation would be, there's obviously the, the argumentative dimension to it and, and all of that. But he, he says that the two things you really need to have for a good conversation is, one, you have to have a genuine self-understanding. And this is one of the things I think students often struggle with in the idea of interreligious dialogue is they don't know their own tradition sure. well enough to be able to do that. And two, which I think is the more fascinating point, is he thinks you have to be willing to risk conversion yourself. Yes, absolutely. And instead of seeking out to change the other person, you have to be open to the possibility that the encounter might change you. Not as a goal in terms of leaving your tradition or something like right, that, right. but the, that the encounter itself can be transformative. Right. And, and, and conversion in the sense of metanoia, of yeah. a change of heart. Yeah, the deeper the, sense of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not yeah. switching religious affiliation. <laughs> um, no, I, I agree a thousand percent. I think yeah. that's absolutely right. There's also a historical angle on that or a, 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 an aspect to that dynamic. Mm -hmm. And that is it's becoming clearer as time goes by and, and historical research, historical theologians are looking into these matters that many Christian and Jewish, although more so Christian teachings were consciously developed in order to be different from the other community and that the differences were perceived in ways that were inaccurate in terms of how they understood the other tradition. Mm -hmm. So if Christians develop certain ways of thinking about Jesus, for example, Christologically, that were predicated upon stereotypes or caricatures of Judaism, as we today correct our misunderstandings and remove those caricatures, it's going to have to have implications for how we understand Christ mm -hmm. so that and here we're at the central nervous system of Christianity mm -hmm. now I'm not I'm I don't want to be misunderstood as suggesting that that is a sort of a, a total reboot or something of you don't want to throw out Chalcedon no, I'm not throwing out Chalcedon by any means in fact we ought to invoke it more in this context but that's another conversation but on the other hand the other extreme would be to say here is our teaching and it is unchanging it is static it is not influenced by history or by how that tradition may have motivated us to act in unchrist-like ways the the consequence of dialogue and in this particular case catholic jewish bilateral dialogue is for christians if they're open and, and they need to be for it to be authentic dialogue as you said to to be prepared to have to rethink some really uh, visceral sorts of self-understandings. And sometimes I wonder if people that are involved in dialogue or maybe are inv involved with it on a peripheral way sort of intuitively sense this peril, you know, mm -hmm. and so withdraw or don't jump into the deep end of the pool or whatever because it is very challenging. But I also think it's a gift of the Holy Spirit. So... So again, that's where we are. If, if I may, I mean, can you can you offer a concrete example for yourself of where Jewish Christian dialogue has adjusted or changed your sense of Christology or your understanding of Christ? So yes, it's 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 perilous to do that in a, a thirty second soundbite. <laughs> but so if Jews are in covenant with God, which is current, which is our understanding, the covenant was never revoked, as John Paul II put it many times. And that that's a, a living, ongoing, dynamic relationship. Then if we 
who are Christian think of God as triune, as constantly creating and sustaining, constantly revealing, constantly inviting into relationship with God, then that's the God who, from our Christian perspective, Jews must be in covenant with. Mm. Can't be some other God, Mm -hmm. right? And therefore, Jews are in a living encounter with the Word of God, with the Logos, with Mm -hmm. the revealing, inviting self-disclosure of God. Mm -hmm. Pope Francis has put this in an audience with the International Council of Christians and Jews a couple of years ago, as uh, I don't have the direct quote, but it, but it's something close to Jews are enriched by the encounter, by their ongoing encounter with God's word. And he referred specifically to in the Torah. So engaging the Torah and studying it and, and, and plumbing the spiritual depths is an encounter with the living Logos, is an encounter with the word of God. Well, of course, for us Christians, that Logos was incarnated and is experienced in the one who was crucified and raised. Mm-hmm. And, and so rather than being a necessarily or inevitable source of division between Christians and Jews, the figure of Christ actually can be for Christians a point of commonality with Jews, that we both encounter the word of God and God has not revealed to both of us, or to either of us, I'm not sure on the grammar of this <laughs> sentence now, but I do not know what it means to be experiencing the word of God through, through the Torah. Whereas Jews don't know what it means to be encountering the word of God in the person of Christ. But we both can recognize that we're each encountering the word of God, mm-hmm. authentically and deeply and profoundly. And that's what opens the possibility for dialogue. But that's a, that would be an example yeah. of a Christological, in brief, I mean, there's sure. lots, tons more that could be said, but a, but a brief way of understanding that the word is not ours alone. Yeah. No, that's very helpful. I appreciate that. Uh, I, I'm conscious of time because I know you have a packed day, so I have to let you go soon. So I, I as I mentioned previously... I have five less serious questions. Okay. Like you didn't mention the number five, but okay. So they're, they're, they're quick. Don't okay. worry. Okay. Uh, number one, what was the last movie you watched? Oh, uh, what was the last movie I watched? Could be Netflix. It doesn't have to be in a theater. Uh, the, the last movie I watched was Kenneth Branagh's Not Much Ado About Nothing. Oh, nice. Because I saw something on PBS. They have a new series called Shakespeare Uncovered. Okay. And they did Much Ado About Nothing. And I thought, I'm going to go back and look at that movie. <laughs> so that, that, that's what I did. All right. Number two, you live in Philadelphia. Do you have a cheesesteak of choice? No. No. I don't. I'm sorry. I'm from New York originally. So okay. I am not, I was not sort of reared on cheesesteaks. Okay. Yeah. And you have not yet, you haven't, you haven't picked a side. No. You, so, do you enjoy them generally? Or? Sure, yeah, okay. they're very tasty and full of calories. <laughs> <laughs> but you're not you're not going to turn down a cheesesteak wherever it comes from. Uh, it would be rude. <laughs> Good answer. Number three: Of whom or what would you be the patron saint? Oh my gosh, what a question! Is this, this is what you ask all of your? Uh, I think I've asked that one of everybody actually. Oh, I don't know. To answer that question would be so pretentious. Or aspirational. Okay, well, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. I, uh, there probably, I mean, there are so many Catholic saints that this, this slot is probably already taken. Mm. But I would say the saint of thinking outside the box. Okay, thanks. 
Number four, a favorite or, if you choose, a least favorite liturgical song. I would have to say Lord of the Dance as least favorite. Okay. Because of the lyric in, I think it's the second verse, I dance for the scribe and for the, I dance for the scribe and the Pharisee, but they wouldn't dance and they wouldn't follow me. They whipped me and stripped me and hung me high and left me there on the cross to die. Don't think so. Pharisees had nothing to do with it. Yep. It's a good answer. And finally, number five. Good. (laughs) (laughs) These are getting too tough. Go ahead. If by some miracle you were elected the next pope, what would your pope name be? This is kind of like the patron saint question. But different. I have no idea. I really don't. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. I'm just going to take a pass on that one. I just have no clue as to how to answer that. Then we will just go with Pope Philip. All right. <laughs> don't uh, is that the first? It. I guess it is. I, I don't, don't know, know if any other Pope Philip. I think it would be, but I'm not 100% yeah, sure. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking with me. It's been a pleasure. A lot of fun. Thank you. The Daily Theology Podcast was produced this week by Matthew Tapey and Stephen Oakey. Special thanks to the St. Leo Center for Catholic Jewish Studies, who brought Professor Cunningham to campus and made this episode possible. The music for the podcast was created by Matt Hines of the band Eastern Sea. If you haven't checked them out on Spotify yet, you gotta get with the program. If you like the podcast so much you would like to support us with a few dollars, go over to patreon.com slash dtpodcast. These pledges help us to cover the cost of hosting the podcast, and hopefully in the future will enable us to get some recording equipment that will allow us to do live podcast events. Of course, if you want to know more about faith-seeking understanding in everyday life, head on over to our website, dailytheology.org, our Facebook page, Daily Theology, or our Twitter feed, at Daily Theo.